Welcome everybody to Arsenal Pass Time of the Round, episode 30. Today we're joined by Matt DeMarco, also known as Flake. Maybe if you, <laughs> Many of you probably know Flake from his time in the casting booth at the U.S. Nationals. Flake is also the host of the Instant Speed, po Instant Speed Podcast, I'm stumbling over my words, as well as maybe a little fan of a card game called Gwent. Anyway, Flake, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. Thanks for, for having me on the show. A little fan of the game called Gwent would be a little <laughs> bit of an understatement, but um, uh, <laughs> Gwent has paid for all this. Uh, for those of you who have, I guess, uh, the benefit of watching this on YouTube or the visual aspect of it. But yeah, uh, I guess I am a caster by trade, uh, as it were. So it's good to be on the show. Thank you so much. Awesome. Just so because maybe our audience and myself is not too aware of what Gwent is, do you want to kind of go into? Well, obviously, I think some of us know it's a it's a card game. Um, but past that, what do you love about it? What do you do with it? Um, just give me the rundown. What is Gwent? So Gwent is a card game that is essentially spawned from a mini game from The Witcher 3 that essentially blossomed into what it is now, which is a full-fledged um, TCG, digital TCG, much in the same vein as every other digital TCG that people have probably played by now. The difference is, is that this one, uh, this card game particularly, um, it removes itself from that very familiar framework, which is both both players have a life total and you use a resource system to put cards on the board that then you attack and trade and, and whittle down your opponent's life total. It's not that at all. It's a different kind of game. Uh, very low variance, low RNG elements to it. But um, that's basically it. Um, my main um, job, I suppose, my my career as a broadcaster has led me to be uh, an official uh, on the official casting team for CDPR's Gwent esports scene, their their series. So that's essentially what uh, what I do in relation to the game. Uh, they have four to five major tournaments um, a year, and I am their main broadcaster or their in their primary duo for uh, for their tournament scene. Awesome. How did you get into Gwent? Gwent was given to me. I mean, I've been playing card games since uh, I was 13 and I turned 36 in like a couple days. So it's been quite a, a ride, so to speak. Um, but how I got into Gwent specifically was a, a good friend of mine, Dane McBurney. Um, he basically him and I met through um, his partner, uh, his partner and I, her and I were basically, we grew up together. We were best friends since we were like three or four years old. I met through her when they met. Uh, and he, him and I hit it off because we both played a lot of Hearthstone. But he eventually said, hey, you should try this other game called Gwent. I'm very involved in it. I have a podcast for it, blah, blah, blah. Just check it out. So I did, and then it, it was on its the second go, because it's kind of an acquired taste for many, because it's, it's so different from what most people are used to when it comes to card games. But for me, Gwent um, was something that was introduced to me by Dane, and I just eventually uh, took a little time, but I did e eventually really see uh, not just the promise in the game, but how it differentiated itself from what is already out there. And I really gravitated towards that. So what about your path as um, a player and a cast? Did you start as a player um, and did you move to casting after that? Or did you kind of jump straight into casting for... Uh or C CPDR, right? That's the name of the C uh, CDPR, yeah. CDPR, so yeah. 
so basically, um, I mean, everyone starts as a player. I mean, there's that there's no way around it. It's very rare that someone would have a broadcasting background and then just be kind of roped into a role like this. I started as a player like everyone else did. And um, when the tournament started rolling out for Gwent specifically, I always wanted to be a broadcaster. That was my uh, career path. I did um, in college. I did uh, radio in college. I did uh, a lot of um, stage work, be it improv, emceeing, comedy, stuff like that for quite a while uh, in college and university. And eventually I got uh, I was interning at, at a radio station in my hometown of Montreal, uh, Quebec, Canada. And um, that eventually it's kind it's hard because when you're interning you're not necessarily getting paid or getting all the opportunities you're there like every other intern knows as kind of like a, a cheap form of labor to get experience right it's that whole mm -hmm. work for exposure kind of trade-off uh in its purest form uh, eventually when i moved out to toronto where i live now uh, I just played a lot of games. I didn't know anybody in the city, mostly. So my evenings were often spent playing card games anyways. And somebody said, you should try tw uh, Twitch because if you're going to, if you, you like broadcasting, you like playing games, just it's a, it's a perfect marriage of your two hobbies. And that took off. I eventually started getting a following in Gwent. Particularly, I got offered an audition to host one of their major tournaments. Um, that turned into uh, a opportunity to just cast those tournaments. But it wasn't without its own um toil and effort for years because like most people know it's not just spoon fed to you if you want to become a caster you have to essentially have a body of work a portfolio something to give to yeah. someone to show that you're capable of doing it right so i had you know uh, a a year or two of twitch streams to lean back on but also myself and a couple friends may um gwent being a, ve a very pre uh, predominantly european game we created our own North American tournament that uh, we called it the like the North American Championship. We got it like a wrestling belt as the prize, which was awesome and stuff like that. But we made our own tournament, which uh, had, you know, a couple thousand people watching it. And I was I hosted I, I acted as the host role and worked for something like 19 hours straight of broadcasting interviews, things like that, casting. Mm -hmm. And that that is what essentially, you know, flicked the switch for CDPR to say we should, you know, give this guy a. Uh, an opportunity to not kill himself for free on stage in in philadelphia where the tournament held and you know actually have a a shot at doing this for a paycheck which was uh, a dream come true frankly yeah that's awesome and there was something you said there that really resonated with me is that you know most casters come from being a player it just wouldn't make any sense to just drop somebody in but then somehow flesh and blood got tan and grace so you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> are we i think it's going to become like a <laughs> a reoccurring theme where we just we just poke a little fun at tan because he loves it he always gets me back on the uh, i'm all the for shows. it i'm all for it I, I mean if they're if we're doing like a team tannin or or team arsenal pass <laughs> style thing i i would never side with tan and grace um we shared a, a hotel room so i have all the nitty-gritty about all the the nasty little details about tan and grace yeah, he's definitely one of my favorite people in Flesh and Blood. So speaking of Flesh and Blood, how did you make the transition over to this game? And when did you do it? I got in probably just about when Monarch Unlimited was rolling out. So I would say that I'm I'm late to the party. I mean, like five years down the line, I, I, it would sound like I'm in at the ground floor to get in at Monarch. But right now, as it exists, I mean, I feel like I'm, I've missed uh, a lot of that early game nostalgia of being able to play Wrath when it just came out and whatnot. It was introduced to me by um, somebody by the name of um, 
my god um Lewis Woodhouse is his name, uh, who was a streamer for a while. He, he, he does a few things. He, he meddles with a whole bunch of different card games from a marketing perspective. But he's the one who was streaming it one day just to say, like, oh, I, I came upon this game and it's quite great. And I asked a few questions and immediately I, I was just hungry for some sort of paper card game that I can play that wasn't magic. And that, I mean, not no slight necessarily on magic. I have a lot of fond memories about Magic the Gathering. But at the time, I was so exhausted of spending money on a standard format that I, I basically just made a commander deck or two. And, and that's where that was. But in terms of actually playing at, you know, what are called now armories, but like the FNMs that I used to attend and and the sealed events or the, the limited events that I used to go to every week, I was I missed that. I missed opening packs. I missed, you know, playing a game that wasn't necessarily in the in within the digital realm. So I bought a couple starter decks, started messing around, and before long I was, you know, nine or ten boxes deep trying to work backwards to gain a collection. And I got fairly proficient with uh with katsu and and then i just took off with that and and it kind of broadened from that perspective i just loved the fact that the game itself felt uh i felt like it it, it hit the resource conundrum quite adequately a, a lot of card games typically run into a wall when it comes to properly balancing a resource system is it like a scaling mana system like hearthstone has is it something like land-based like magic has this was different um the cards you had in hand essentially correlated to resources that you had at your disposal and momentum in this game was real it was palpable it was something that you can really just simmer within and feel if you were if you were on the back foot it felt like you were getting run over and at a certain point you needed to wait for an opponent to have a misstep for you to step in and maybe you know take the lead on the next couple turns i really enjoyed that element that aggro felt aggro control felt control and within that you know um macrospo macroscopic view of archetypes you had a ninja feeling like a ninja you had a guardian feeling like a guardian and and so on and so forth so i really really uh was taken by the game uh, i know nothing about the lore but what i appreciated was that the mana system was clean and there was a, a real feeling of momentum in this game that i wanted to explore further and then from that point onward it was just um a, a lot of my effort and and money for that matter was sunk into this game over everything else yeah. So you came from a digitally exclusive game. Um, obviously, you probably played card games before that, Magic the Gathering, or what be it. But coming to Flesh and Blood, um, physical only. What do you think of the What do you think of the the advantages of that model, and is it sustainable in the long term as we progress farther and farther to a more digitalized world? I've had this debate on on my podcast. I'm not trying to uh, usurp and and like throw in my 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 podcast to plug it or anything. But I've had this debate several times with uh, many people regarding is it sustainable because there's a certain level of stubbornness i feel that lss has taken a stand on and saying no this will never be digital we will never get involved we don't care what you do to have access to it if you want to play on tabletop we're not going to stop you but we are not going to get involved with creating a digital client for it and i i, I respect that to a degree but also you have to have uh, a situation where there's perhaps moving goalposts for where you want these uh, the company to be to be sustainable because right now within this covid environment that we're in all i'm dying to do as i have right next to me right now is just 
play these heroes and play them and and i've I, I, my only exposure to this is talking with lgs owners and operators and the people who attend them through discord and basically right next to me is just the filings and sorting of the cards it's really the only um um what's the word uh, exposure i have to quote unquote playing with it because i could i could tune into or log into tabletop simulator and play right now but it's not the same feel so i do respect that lss wants to keep that that you know very um uh, sacred element of the game of being across from a player and playing it but it's something i feel that they may need to reevaluate and i'm not saying that because i think that the current model is is poor uh, or or not sustainable i just feel like at a certain degree you will eventually have to dip into um this this entire new landscape of accessibility for those who not for for their profit necessarily but there are pockets of people in this that i've i've spoken to who just can't get a game even when if there wasn't covid because there's not a lot of people within their 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 area where they can sustain uh eight person draft pods or or you know um a weekly armory that they can attend and have a, a decent enough showing um not to say that you know i mean like once once covid cleans like is gone and we're back to normal it might change it might be a situation where perhaps um you know th with all the restrictions lifted there's this resurgence this this renaissance of the game where people who um you know will will be able to go discover it because they're back to their standard routine of attending an LGS and maybe they see the flesh and blood players in the corner playing and i know that i get interested in digimon tcg because there was always an armory at the same time that there was a digimon event and i'm like oh, i just want to watch like i just want to see it so hopefully that kind of changes but um uh, they can sustain it i believe they can absolutely sustain it but they need to reevaluate um, down the line because right now it'll be fine. Once COVID clears up, there's going to be a spike of interest and in player base. But eventually it's something maybe in two years that they're going to have to just sit down and say, OK, like, let's take another let's take stock of where we're at and where we want to be. Does a digital platform fit into that plan? What do you think about the effects a digital client has on its physical counterpart in, in relations to variables like big data and um, basically being able to assess games on an extreme kind of an extreme subset of uh, uh, your extreme sample size, right? And you have things like metas being solved. Yes. And maybe it takes away some of that spark that makes flesh and blood so important. That's essentially the first thing that that always comes to mind is the fact that when you have this immediate at your fingertips way to log in and find an opponent, uh, the meta is a global meta. And right now, as it exists, when it's only cardboard, it's a it's a localized meta because I know that when I go to, um, you know, my LGS or I go play at an event, I know what to expect because I know that this person plays this, I know this person plays this and that there isn't a prism or a dash in sight, so to speak. So you can kind of build to those degrees and you can kind of, um, you know, acclimate yourself to that particular climate and then be able to uh, succeed or do whatever. There's these pockets of metas. And if there's a digital client, the first thing that gets solved immediately is what is best and what is everyone playing. There's no secrets. There's none of these little silent cabals of people who are um play testing that are um theory crafting that are, are you know cobbling together these interesting lists that eventually when the big tournaments come out 
and are on the big, sh- you know, on the big stage, such as the Nationals, etc. That's when people finally get their taste of these uh, of these secret brews or these, you know, uh, secret weapons. If there was a digital meta, the first thing that would happen is that within a week, everything would get solved. Uh, and right now, even as uh, Tales of Aria was released up to this point, there are people who are still playing with the cards that they exist and finding new combinations, finding new ways to exploit particular weaknesses and such. So I think that that is obviously the first thing to go is um, the the constant flux and the localized pockets of meta that exist uh, amidst you know, wherever you you specifically are located. Um, and, and that's one thing that I think maybe Flesh and Blood will always have a little edge on the digital realm is that when you're playing in the digital realm, the first thing you're going to do is go on a, on a website and find what works, not just in your area, but for the entire world. You're like, this is a tier one deck. We're going to play it. We're going to, you know, we're going to roll it. And that's the way it goes. And that really can suck a lot of the fun out of playing, not just from the 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 players who uh who want to continue to work and solve and and piece together interesting variations of of decks and archetypes but for the casual player who wants to log in and get completely smashed by the same two decks over and over and over and over again it really does rob um of the player experience so having a paper only format i think can preserve that a little bit yeah for sure cuz it makes some of those things that you- you're able to analyze uh, through a digital client physically unreasonable or close to impossible. How, what would you, what, what would you propose as sort of the conundrum we'd run into with the resource system, right? So the current way of playing flesh and blood in the physical form, you have to, you know, if you want to remember the cards that you're pitching, um, you have to do it via memorization. You can't take notes uh, through a digital client. This would inevitably be commonplace, right? Through an add on through a third party system. Do you think yeah. this would undermine uh, that system in the game? This has been a debate that I've been involved with for a lot because uh, card trackers and such are, are so prominent within, um, you know, established games that, that are out there. Like Hearthstone, Gwent has one as well. And a lot of people actually have, uh, would, would argue that, well, if you have a deck tracker, it's cheating. And like, it's not cheating because it's information that's already known. You're not manipulating your, your deck in any way. You're merely having a crutch to help you because any player can frankly you know, sit down and memorize it with enough mental discipline can actually know what's coming up. And the best players in the world already do that. This is not new. It's something that you've seen, um, you know, that can even trickle down to blackjack card counters. Like if you you have a system and you have the discipline and the mental acuity to be able to run a count, then at the same time, I mean, the fact is, is that you're running a 60 or 70 card deck and all you have to keep track of is just sort of run a list. Okay, I pitched this card, then I pitched this card, then I pitched this card. So you're just rem- you're, you're you're memorizing two, three, four, five, six cards as the game progresses, and eventually you'll you'll find those cards back. So um, I think that the digital clients that exist with all these crutches and helpers, I mean, like, is it? I don't say it's illegal, but I find that there's when a game is in the in a paper only format. And even though you cannot take you cannot take notes like these are part of the, you know, like the formal tournament event kind of regulations and such. Uh, uh, you can consult notes prior, but you can't take notes during, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. Um, but the fact remains is that this this basically just rewards players who go beyond just knowing how to play their deck and what their opponent's win conditions are and what to expect. This is an, an additional skill. It's another layer 
that you'll have to dig into to go from good player to great player, great player to elite, elite to to champion, right? There are there are these extra these these echelons, these strata that you have to constantly be digging towards to continuously improve. And for deck trackers and such, it was just it was like having, you know, it's like having an iPhone that does all this stuff for you, you know? So uh, I, I really appreciate the fact that this game with pitch tracking and all those extra elements. I mean, pitch tracking is not is not a is not a, the same skill as deck building, but it's certainly an applicable skill to 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 go up a notch from average to good, good to great, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, one thing I like about pitch tracking in Flesh and Blood is that it's completely optional. Um, it's in no way required to play the base game. So, right, but it, it does. It, it it does propel a player from you know from one level of play to another. Um, yeah, so it raises the skill ceiling, right? The skill floor of the game would still remain the same. The what you would need to know to pick it up and play it, but to become a master, it adds that other vector that you need to um, practice. Yeah, everyone's looking for an edge, right? Like mm-hmm. in, in every way, shape, or form, whether you go to the casino and you think you have a system to play blackjack or roulette or whatever, it, it doesn't matter because ultimately, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is just designed uh, for you to lose. But in a game like this, you know, the the variance and the RNG elements to it is really just kind of stop themselves after a point where you 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 draw your hand, and after that, it's like okay, the cards I'm gonna I'm gonna be peeling off the top of my deck are. Or who knows? Because I shuffled the deck. But everything after that, everything I'm pitching is trackable. It's it, there's very little RNG elements to this game. Um, you know, outside of scabskin leathers or or KO or something like that, where you could have a big turn in those regards, and that's all just a dice roll. But frankly, um, if you can survive through that uncertainty of shuffling the deck, eventually you're you're uh, you're essentially laying the bricks for the road to victory later on. And it might take some time to get there, but all the best players that I've ever seen or all the games that I've I've cast, you know, that I've cast, you're, you're wondering, you're like, OK, they're pitching cards that, you know, it seems like a, an odd way that they're pitching cards. Like, why would you pitch two blue when you could pitch? Uh, sorry, two red when you could pitch a yellow and then you understand why. And um, these extra elements to to improving, uh, um, you know, and, and raising that ceiling, like you're mentioning, pe- players are discovering where to get an edge on their opponent because the, the very baseline of of how a player of a very new player can improve is with their wallet they'll just go buy the best cards and then beat up on their friends because their cards are inherently better it doesn't matter how well they play how they pitch or whatever but eventually as you get better those are the extra layers that you're peeling back where you'll find that edge and i love that about this game i love it i love it i love that about this game about the resource system the mana but more more importantly is the players who are able to innovate and understand not just how their deck operates, but how their opponent's deck operates and how to exploit it down the road through pitch tracking. It's such a an underrated skill um, for, for you know, those intermediate players that want to become elite. For sure. So you mentioned uh, picking up Katsu, uh, developing some proficiency with him. But how did you ultimately make the transition over to casting in Flesh and Blood? So the casting in Flesh and Blood, um, I mean, by the time that I did U.S. Nationals, I had already been I had already been a contracted caster for various games for several years. Um, you know, I've done 30 events in my life, more 30 to 40 events in my life um, from as small as you know, uh, tournaments that are like two grand to tournaments that were a hundred thousand dollars. Like the, 
the big the big stage the big show to the smallest of little things i just love doing it so any opportunity that was thrown at me i would take it when flesh and blood was on my radar and i was playing it and playing in tournaments and enjoying myself and loving it um i was already you know friends with some people like tan and grace i was friends with a lot of uh you know armada and such and and people who are already involved in the the casting element and um i knew that it was through channel fireball um a, a really good friend of mine is is alias v who's a caster for magic and her and i uh hang out quite often and she said listen if you're interested i could put you in touch with somebody if you just want to go ahead and, and kick the tires on it so um she put me in touch with uh, channel fireball who um said you know what like we have a roster but if uh, if you want to send us your stuff if ever we have an opening by all means i said absolutely i'm like i'm here for whatever the hell you need if you need me to get coffees i just want to be there i want to be amidst it you know i want to take it in it's it's brand new to me so i'm so fascinated just by uh being at another live event you know in 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 person so uh that eventually turned into uh you know all right send us your tapes and your all your your portfolio nonsense and uh, that turned into, okay, we're going to give you a shot. And the shot happened to be at U.S. Nationals. And it was an amazing event. So that's kind of how it happened. But I mean, the one thing I will say is a lot of people will say, well, that kind of just, you know, randomly materialized. You got a friend to introduce you to people. But I'm like, this kind of rewinds by four or five years. When I started streaming, I started making these connections. I started building a portfolio because... If I had that friend, but no portfolio and, and, and no experience, I would have been tossed aside and said, all right, like dream on buddy. But, um, it's, it's, it's a process. Like I work hard at this. I study, I, 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 you know, I play the game. I, I try to, you know, it's my responsibility to give the, the, the viewer an enhanced experience. I am not the star of that. The star is the gameplay. It's the two players playing the game. Um, my job is to just enhance it and and essentially streamline it to you know to smoothen out the the edges uh, of of you know whatever is is being done. I just want to be. I'm a passenger in those situations as much as the viewer is. I just I'm just the one controlling the radio, so to speak. What was your favorite moment from casting U.S. Nationals? Oh, man. Um, so there was one moment. The, the, the beauty about this is the fact that, um, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors for those who are watching because you don't know. You see the caster desk and then you see the overhead cam of the table and, and you don't know what is going on um, um, amongst that. First of all, the, the Orlando Convention Center is a city. It is enormous. It is the biggest thing I've seen because if you get if, when we took the Uber there and they're like, okay, uh, east entrance or west entrance. I'm like, I don't know. It's all the same. Like, I'll just walk. That was a big mistake because that was like a 20-minute walk from one end to the other, um, you know, which was uh, quite interesting in itself. But you're in this gigantic hall and your booth is earshot, like maybe 20 yards away from where the action is happening. It's just separated from curtains and whatever. And I'm, I'm very animated when I when I cast. And some may like it, some may hate it. It is what it is. But I'm casting a match with Armada. I think it was... I think it was the Kano match. There was a match. There was a few different opportunities where I was just so excited, especially the Kano match, where at one point, the Kano, like Kano was was 
doing its its creative accounting to try to find lethal on half in between a half turn so to speak and at one point i just i just was so excited i said it's it's not even your turn michael you know like the i think it was a michael or it's not even your turn and i yelled it and the judge came and gave me a warning for to quiet down because <laughs> they're playing the game so that was one uh and the other was uh there was a situation where uh it was michael fang playing against i forgot who i completely forgot who but he had just taken a massive massive beating on a turn and um the opponent at some point uh i, I forgot what it was like he, he was able to uh, or he ticked up his tunic or so i forgot what it was but i just said i'm like hey i'm like that's some good news i'm like buck up michael and i was like really loud and you could see him uh, at one point just kind of look because he heard his name and then again i got another warning from the judge that i have to quiet down so it's exciting for us too man it's like super exciting to cast these things but we're like right there like we could like tap him on the shoulder and i know that it's not allowed but you know what i mean yeah, it was very close, especially in Orlando. I think I'm closer than all the others. But uh, what is what is a warning from a judge? Is it a formal warning like a player would get? So what do you get? You get an IP5 if you yell loud again? <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't get anything like in writing, thank God. But like it was one of those things where they kind of peeked their head around the corner. The first one was they gave me like the like shh thing. And then the next one was they went to um, the dude overseeing the whole thing. And I could tell because they're like they pointed at me. They did one of these. And then, and then, like, they did the whole, like, keep it down. And then they looked at me with, like, major stink eye. And I was like, all right, I get it. I'm like, I'll, uh, I'll tone it down. Uh, yeah, like, I think I was just meant to be, like, a, a wrestling announcer because mm -hmm. I get so excited. But part of the, the joy of bringing card games is that they are exciting, that some of these turns are um, out of left field and not necessarily telegraphed. So it's exciting for us to watch it. And I, I try to, you know, let my emotions flow when I'm calling this stuff. Yeah, for sure. So what's the um what's the future of your casting career, Flesh and Blood? You can give that to me in a philosophical sense or you can uh um, <laughs> like give you a schedule. <laughs> yeah, break some NDAs and tell me what you're casting in twenty twenty two. I have never broken an NDA. I've been under a few and not yet. I mean we're here. Well, right now. That could be it. I mean, this could actually be. It depends on how how deep into the weeds we want to get. Uh, but I could be out of a job now. <laughs> I would never. I would never want to uh, to risk that. So as it stands right now, my future for for casting Flesh and Blood is, from what I understand, is that I didn't piss off enough people for them to not consider me uh, for a future role. So my my fingers are crossed. I know there's a lot of events coming up, but again, at the same time amidst lockdowns and and restrictions and such i don't know what that will mean from a broadcast perspective uh and when or if they'll need me all i know is that i did it it seemed to go well i i hopefully made a, a decent impression upon not just the people you know who are are putting on the show but also the people who are viewing and consuming the the tournament um remotely from twitch or wherever it was being broadcast i would love 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 to do this every weekend i mean i'm i'm born to cast that's what i do it's my it, it is like i before casting i had uh i had a pretty decent job in an airline in a management role making good money with great privileges and i gave i don't say gave that up i left that because i was unhappy and i did not enjoy what i was doing it was one of those situations where i could continue down that path you know make good money have a good life but wake up miserable and i gave that up 
to do yeah. this. And alert, that's not a very good life, right? Doing what you want and being happy is important if you're able to meet that's, your, your basic needs. Look, I'm not going to sit here and say that I, uh, you know, like it, uh, this, this is not good advice if you don't have the means to go out there and do it, what you love. Because I, I mean, I was working at this job for I was I was basically I would work from about eight thirty nine o'clock to about five thirty six o'clock get home and then stream from seven to ten p.m. every single day. So I had no life, but that mm-hmm. that effort basically eventually mutated into an opportunity, and that opportunity uh, multiplied and became a career, which afforded me the luxury of taking a massive pay cut to play cards for a living and run my mouth, which I guess is my, that's my translatable skill is just running my big mouth. (laughs) So you spend a lot of time in the public and you have for a long time through either your streaming career or now your casting career. How do you deal with people saying not nice things about you? What is your approach? (laughs) That's, we're going to get real here. Uh, So I, I, it's, I, I don't hide from it. I think it's, uh, it's, it's important to address and to n- normalize, but I, I deal with depression. I'm, I suffer from depression. I have for many years. And part of it is the fact that you're, I'm basically just constantly putting myself on display and, and speaking and whatnot. And a lot of it is therapeutic. Talking gets me through a lot of the 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 mental gymnastics I constantly do in order to just stay grounded and to stay real and and, and mentally healthy. I mean, speaking and and conversing and connecting um, is, is good. It's it's good for me. I have so many critics and I have so many people who don't like me, but I also have so many more who support me. And some of the advice that I I've had along these struggles have essentially come to the fact that. You can't please everyone because if you want to please every, you know what pleases that water, water pleases everyone. It's freaking flavorless and bland. If you want to be flavorless and bland, you'll appeal to so many more people, but you're not going to be anyone's favorite. No one's going to look forward to you. It's you're just there. Right. Um, I've always dug into my my own personality and understood that there are going to be people who don't like my personality. And that's fine. And I'm okay with that. Now, will there be people who are going to be, you know, mean about it and very vocal about it? Sure. But the way that I I essentially cope with it is the fact that I know that on Reddit or on Twitter or whatever, that 90, you know, that the negativity on Twitter is 10% of the noise, but at 200% volume. Like Mm -hmm. the people who have good opinions are not necessarily always sharing them. And when I got into casting officially i got my first big opportunity was because somebody else left and that person who left uh that i was replacing was a fan favorite a lot of people liked this person um it it, it was mogwai mogwai was the one the person that i replaced um for those of you who who are aware of who mogwai is he's very uh, very big um uh involved in legends of runeterra um i replaced him and i had to go through the gauntlet of well, he's not Mogwai, and he's not Mogwai, and he's not Mogwai. And I understand that. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm not Mogwai. I'm me, and I'm not trying to be Mogwai, and nor am I trying to replace him I because he is irreplaceable. I am myself, and eventually, 
you know, uh, people are, are, are not that they're afraid of change necessarily, but they, they like what they like and they don't want to come off of what's familiar and comfortable. And I am most definitely not uh, comfortable for many people because I take my own roots. And what I will say is dealing with the negativity is is not always easy because it's always present. But if you look for the good, it is there and you just need to put the effort in because there is always going to be something that is going to sound uh, that is going to ruin your day if you look hard enough but if you keep digging there's going to be support there's going to be love and that's what i try to lead with is that i try to tell people that you know nobody's perfect but at the same time you know even if you're streaming to five or six viewers that is five or six people who have consciously made the the, the decision to tune into you because they like you and if if you thought about it like even if for the small streamers or the people who like you know, people are like, oh, I only have like eight people or 10 Crazy, people right? listen. If you were in a room is. and you had the audience of eight people, you'd Precisely. be a very popular person. <laughs> exactly. Imagine going to a party and having eight people on a couch listening to you talk. Like that, you are immediately like like Chad numero uno when it comes to that kind of thing. So that's what I had to, you have to come to terms with it. And I'm sure you're the same way. And I don't mean to like flip this on you, but when, when Arsenal Pass started, I'm sure it didn't start to you know, fireworks and, and fanfare. I'm sure it was, a, you know, a very slow crawl to the momentum and the popularity that you guys have now. And that's that that in itself is something that you need to look back on. Um, you know, look at your career, look at yourself in 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 broader strokes, because you today versus you yesterday may be a decline, but you today versus you a year ago is most certainly a positive trend. And that's what you need to lean on. And that's how I get through it. And it, it's not always easy, especially this month. This month has been absolute hell on my mental health, but I am lucky enough to be able to speak with people like yourself, to speak with friends and whatever that really allows you to, to muscle through and, and to, 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 you know, struggle your way into brighter days ahead so we may have already answered this question i think there was a, a quote that's that was a uh, born to cast but what brings you the most happiness in life why do you get out of bed and what are you trying to achieve um maybe it's not only in flesh and blood but potentially a manifestation of whatever you see as self-actualization it sounds like casting is a part of that casting is most certainly a part of that um I know that the days where I have tournaments that I'm or events are the best days of 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 the year for me. Uh, I wake up so gung ho, so happy, so ready to to not just be able to to do my thing, but to also witness what is going to happen. To see the best in the world play a game that I am so intimately involved with. That to me is is enough to get me out of bed. But I mean, those those events are, are few and far between, it seems. And, and, you know, how do you how do you fill the voids and stay grounded? And for me, I wake up every day because I know that there are there's always new content, new discussions, new things to to dissect uh, your podcast, for example. You know, you how many episodes have you put out and how many people are are. Um, tuning in to hear what you have to say about the things that they're passionate about. My passion is cards and I play them, but that's not where all the joy lies because there's so many extra discussions uh, that I have with everyone else. Some of my favorite conversations are with people like Tarek Patel or people like Tan and Grace or, 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 or Armada or yourself or whatnot, where we can go ahead and, and really just, you know, sprinkle a little extra love on what we 
what we're we're into. Um, for me, what make gets me up in in the morning and and happy is that is being able to add to the pool of of great content that's out there that people will enjoy. I try to lead with with love and I try to lead with honesty and sincerity with who I am. And I hope that that radiates through that what you see here is what you get. If you meet me on the street, you meet me here. And that that I think to me is kind of what I try to to put out there as well is that the the flake you're hearing here, the mat that you're hearing here is the same one that you're going to get at the bar or at if you you cross paths with me at a convention or a tournament, I will always have time for you. I will always speak to you because you never know, man. Like you never know what people are going through. I know that we're taking tangents of plenty, but uh, I don't mean that's to hijack that's this. Why, that's really why I created this podcast was your time of the round specifically was to be able to do that. You know, I don't, we don't have to deliver value every second that we're talking. It's the end of the it's day. All, it's all, but it's all value. Yeah. Because how, I, how many conversations are human being, right? Like it, there's in flesh and blood. It's just something that you're interested in. It's, 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 it's a, it's a big part, but it's a, it's also just a fragment of what I am like, and, and I don't want to get too philosophical, but it cards are a massive portion of my life and they have essentially steered me from a career perspective as well. And, and allowed for a quite modest, but livable life. Like I'm comfortable I don't have debt. I pay my bills and I you know, I eat, I, I eat ramen, but who cares? Like I enjoy it. So it's like, it doesn't matter. I drive a 2006 Corolla, but she works and I'm not in any, in any, in any hurting, uh, you know, way at all. So, uh, it's been a good life and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna toss it away. We talked about, um, or at least you mentioned coming in, in, in Monarch, right? Coming, I guess in the context of how long the game has existed late to the party, nevertheless, these are the formative days. These are when the game is actually reaching mass adoption. It's being developed. The personalities, the actors, the players, the professionals, they are being created. Their legacies are being form, uh, uh, f- formed right now, right? How, do you f- how does it feel that you might potentially be a part of something so, so, so big in the future. And you are not only just a part of it as, you know, kind of a passive actor, but you're actively laying the groundwork for something that could be a Magic the Gathering. It's, it's, there's uh, a certain level of intimidation that comes with it. And I was, I mean, I was involved in Gwent uh, in closed beta where you needed like a a special invitation with a key to get into it, to start playing. I was there at the ground level, uh, like so many others, but I, even at that rate, like I felt like I was late to the party back then. I was, I was an unknown. I'd started my streaming career with that in the beta phase and went from, you know, from there to, to where I am now with that particular game, but it felt different with flesh and blood every other card game that i've ever wanted to get involved with be it uh runeterra or magic or whatever no matter what it was if you started from the beginning you i I would always feel like there everything had already been explored and everybody's flag had already been planted and there was just no more real estate for me to actually um you know set roots and and flourish to a degree with flesh and blood it feels different it feels like there's so much undiscovered territory for me to uh, not just necessarily get a foothold on in terms of being a personality within the game, but also from a foothold of exploring different ways to not just play, but to bring content uh, content to to the to the people to the community who enjoy the game and allow the game to flourish and to support the game in in that regard. 
it's intimidating to think that uh, first of all, it's it's very flattering to, to for for people to think that I have influence in that regard to shape how the game is is where the direction it's going and whatnot. Well, you, are, you are the game's orator, right? That you play a, debatably one of the biggest roles in shaping that history and the legacy. The recordings that we'll go back and watch to see what Flesh and Blood used to be like. That is your voice and your face that is telling yeah. us the story. <laughs> That's the intimidation part right there. That's where it constantly kind of looms overhead, you know, as this, you know, this ever watching specter, this overlord that is, is, is well, in certain cases, it's, it's Channel Fireball who are like, don't swear and don't, you know, make it, don't make an ass of yourself. But in other regards, it's the game itself who, who wants to be represented properly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm in such a, a privileged position right now because like you said, I, it is my voice that is... A, at least from the U.S. Nationals um, in Orlando, that accompanied so many memorable moments. And myself as a major sports fan, one of my heroes is Vin Scully, who for years and years and years did the play-by-play for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And how many moments in sports or, or you know, where you look back on and they are only enhanced because the broadcaster associated with that particular moment has done a pristine job of not just you know, adding detail and painting a, a prettier picture of what you're already looking at, but also knows when to sit back and allow the moment to simmer. And that's something that I'm constantly trying to learn and to improve upon. But yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's it's a heavy burden uh, that constantly lurks. But it, at the same time, that burden is nothing negative. It's more so of um, a motivating factor for me to constantly be on my game, to constantly understand um how to properly you know portray what what is being played in front of us because it is a beautiful game it's an intricate game it's a complex game it's difficult and the players who are playing it uh, you know do have personality you're across from somebody so there might be fireworks there might be some sort of friction and you need to be able to be in tune with that and let these things just organically develop you you are there to uh as a broadcaster to um, not necessarily create the narrative, but to to spice it up, to to steer it a little bit. And um, it's a big responsibility that I definitely take seriously. And I hope that people who listen to me work understand that I, I will never know everything. Because if I did, I would be either creating the game or playing at the top level. But my particular set of skills, it translates well to being able to bring... A, a better version of what is being put out in front of me uh and that's that's what i hope for and that's that is it's like i said it's it's pretty intimidating in the way the way that you said you are the voice of this it's like damn like i am the voice of this <laughs> until they fire me or they don't take, take me back i guess so for my last question i want to ask you what needs to be fixed in flesh and blood for long-term oh, success boy. what's one thing only one okay Two. um I'm not even going to touch rules. Um, I said that the mana system in, in this, the resource system is is almost spot on. I think that they hit pretty damn close to a bullseye on this one. I, so I think that that in itself is a, a major feather in the cap. I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to treat this almost like a, a compliment sandwich. We're going to open with something nice and then I'm going to tear them apart. But the, the first edition slash unlimited release points need to be addressed. 
I understand that there is an allure from a collector standpoint of having a first edition print of something because it's the first wave you want to get in on the ground floor. You know, there's an alpha wave, uh, you know, people sitting on cards that are worth, you know, several hundreds of thousands of dollars, like a, you know, of a, of a gem mint alpha Lotus and blah, blah, blah. And people have these perverse ideas that if they get a first edition print of an important card that they're going to retire off of it in 20 years, but that's not the point. The point is, is that accessibility to card games needs to be up, especially in this regard, where um, it's not even on the black, like the black secondary market, the black market of buying cards and cases where, uh, you know, when a new set, like, for instance, Tales of Aria came out, first edition came out, and people were just going bananas over buying it and, and, and essentially buying out the retailers but the retailers were also uh, the lgs's that uh, some of them were were hyping up boxes and putting them at like 200 bucks a piece of first edition and that's well above msrp and but there's nothing that can happen now how do you uh, you know address uh that problem of accessibility to the game um but also appease the collector the collector's aspect of it i think that they need to release a a kind of like a collector's print like you could release a first print of a special box that has the alternate arts of certain things like for instance a channel like frigid has an alternate art um and all that other stuff but make sure that the people who want to play the game are not going to be going broke um to go and attend a tournament because that is a major turnoff from the casual player and in all honesty you know i'm involved with the game from a perspective where I might be broadcasting games that are played by the top players in the world. But when I go play, I'm playing against casuals and some of them complain about not being able to play and that turns them off. So the you know, the lifeblood of the game is the casual players who are, are attending these tournaments and they're not there because they want to top eight in RTN. They're there because they want to play cards. And if they don't have the cards to play, they're not going to play it. And I sincerely think that this, this, chasm between a first edition print and an unlimited print is where people basically jump ship and i really wish that they would address that release it all at once create a, a premium collector grade product for those who want it but let everyone else just play the cards when they're released that's all i gotta say awesome well thank you so much for joining me on this podcast it was a great conversation and before i let you go why don't you go <laughs> Get to the shilling, you know, plug yourself, tell us where Damn we right. find you, what you do, <laughs> all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, this is the uh, the best part again. Um, uh, let me just start again as saying thank you so much for for allowing me to uh, the, this platform to just talk the game. And uh, I, I hold Arsenal Pass as essentially the gold standard when it comes to content for this game. So uh, I want to thank you for, for supporting the game and the community in the way that you guys do. You guys are awesome. And um, that leads me to my little fledgling little podcast called the Instant Speed Podcast, which you guys can check out. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. It's on Google Podcasts. I do weekly episodes. Uh, I have amazing guests. I, I, I don't know why they put up with me, but I have great guests on the podcast. And um, you can check it out. It's on YouTube.com slash 983TV. That is the production company that does all the production, I guess, <laughs> of the <laughs> podcast. And on Twitch, twitch.tv slash watchflake, W-A-T-C-H-F-L-A-K-E. That's where I broadcast uh, on the regular Twitter at watchflake as well. Um, reach out and I'm always accessible. And again, man, I do sincerely appreciate what you do. And thank you so much for having me on your show.
Awesome. Little Easter egg for anybody who made it to this part in the video. If you haven't already commented in an angry fury, I do see that Flake's name has the incorrect quotation on it. A double quotation and then a single. So if you made it all the way here, this is your Easter egg. Hit me with a comment. Give it a give us a nice thanks, Hayden, because I'm recording with his uh, his thing today and I saw it and I was like, oh, that's going to piss some people off. <laughs> but anyway, again, Flake's, Flake, thank you so much. Um, it, was, it was awesome to talk to you. I wish you the best in 2022. I'm sure, I'm sure we're going to be seeing each other. Um, and until next time, see you in the next episode. Awesome. Good stuff.